This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let us pray. Almighty God, we come this morning hungry to meet you and be nourished by your word. Meet each of us where we are, and as we learn, mark, and inwardly digest your holy scriptures, give us both challenge and comfort as we seek to grow in maturity of faith by studying your word. Amen. In the year 1520, in the opening lines of a treatise entitled The Freedom of a Christian, Martin Luther wrote of the twofold reality that a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. Yet a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Perfectly free from all to be a perfectly dutiful servant of all. And Luther, with his wordplay, is highlighting the truth that the gospel turns everything upside down. Perfectly free to become a servant. We see this quite a bit in the scriptures, this upside down principle. Love your enemies. Blessed are those who mourn. If someone sues you and takes your tunic, give them your coat as well. This countercultural, upside-down philosophy comes from the core of the gospel itself. The Creator God becomes human, enters an existence of suffering, out of love for the very world He created. The gospel flips on its head how we think about money, how we use our time, how we make decisions. As new creations, we don't do things the same way the world does anymore. And as Luther was getting at in his quote, the gospel changes how we understand the idea of freedom and rights. Perfectly free from all, to be a perfectly dutiful servant to all. We see this upside down concept unfolding in today's New Testament reading from 1 Corinthians 9. Paul is working through a disagreement happening among Christians in Corinth about the freedoms and rights that they have when it comes to choosing how to conduct their lives. Not civil rights, per se, like voting and, and free speech, but moral rights, the freedoms that Christians have to conduct our lives before God. And that's still a hard question today. The Old Testament people of God had the law, which laid out with pretty amazing precision how to live and what was okay and not okay for God's people to do. But we don't have anything quite like that for those of us living under the new covenant. To borrow a quote from Pastor Tim Keller, there is no book of Leviticus in the New Testament dictating exactly how we should dress and what we should eat and what we can watch and read and where we can work. We can identify the things that are obviously sinful and defiant to God, but much of our lives is spent facing daily decisions that fall into gray areas. How much language or content in a movie is, is okay before we should switch the channel. Does it matter if I know that the company I work for has some wage discrimination with its employees if it doesn't affect my department? 
What about the right that I have to defend or, or totally justify my point of view in an argument with my spouse or with a friend? These are the questions that a New Testament Leviticus might be helpful for. And to make matters harder for these Christians in Corinth, they were the first generation of Jesus followers. They had no tradition to look back and lean on. So they were doing their best to work it out day by day under the new covenant. How do we know what is okay to do and what is not okay to do? Are we totally free from the laws in the Old Testament? Do we have the right to follow our conscience in difficult areas? As we read Paul's answers to these questions, we'll see the way the gospel takes the way that we think about rights and freedoms and flipping it on its head. Let me read a portion of today's scripture uh, for us all to hear again. Paul writes, For though I am free with respect to all, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that I might by all means save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, so that I might share in its blessings. This passage is well suited for the season of Epiphany. Paul desires to bring the gospel and see lives changed everywhere, regardless of geography or cultural background. And he's willing to do what it takes to get that done, even adapting his conduct and language at times to make his message as clear as possible. Paul's words, though, have even more punch when we zoom out and remember the question that he's answering. What rights and freedoms do we have as Christians, and how do we use them? So to move back a chapter to 1 Corinthians 8, we see Paul start to discuss an issue that had apparently been the source of some division among the Christians in that city. It was the era of the glorious Roman Empire, and the urban landscape was filled with temples to gods and deities, for you name it, with altars and various sacrificial systems. Pretty much everything in public life, from hospitality to socializing to education to politics to commerce happened in settings that paid tribute to idols. Even the food sold in the marketplace was likely to have been dedicated to a pagan god as recently as that very morning. This meant that Christians in Corinth and elsewhere faced a serious challenge. What does it mean to lead a holy life in Corinth? Should I altogether avoid the marketplace, social gatherings, or even stepping foot into a pagan family's home? If so, how could such a life be missional? This was a hard question. The Christians were divided. Some believed that you could be defiled by engaging with pagan culture in this way and refused to accept meat that had been used in idol sacrifice. Other believers claimed their freedom in Christ and, and didn't think it was a big deal to eat this meat. They found themselves needing Paul's wisdom. 
Are we free to eat food that has been sacrificed to an idol? And Paul is gracious enough to give them a full and well-rounded answer. His opening remarks on the subject set the stage with an important framework. He writes in chapter 8, We know that all of us possessed knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So right away, Paul reminds us, we cannot talk about the Christian life apart from love. We can't do it. Whatever we decide about this issue, it has to be within the framework of love. And then Paul continues, and I paraphrase, we know that an idol isn't anything and that there is only one true God. So you're not in any worse standing with God for eating something that's been sacrificed to an idol, and you're not in any better standing with him if you abstain. Paul wants to be clear, nothing actually happens to the meat when it's sacrificed to an idol. It's important that we establish that. And what's more, eating or not eating cannot change the foundation of your right standing with God, because the foundation is not your righteousness at all. It's Christ's, which we receive by grace. But listen to what Paul says next. Even though you have the right, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Paul says, you and I know that there's nothing to be superstitious about with this meat, but not everyone is that confident. New Christians, especially those who were accustomed to idol worship before they knew Christ, they might still struggle with this. Paul refers to those Christians as the weak, not referring to their morality, but the weakness of their conscience. It wasn't fully formed yet. These Christians, these weak Christians, were afraid that eating idol sacrifices could defile them, that it could jeopardize their standing with God. And Paul readily admits that this is a sign of immaturity, and hopefully as they grow in Christ, they are able to understand the nuances of this issue. But as they are right now, they are vulnerable. And Paul warns the strong Christians, the right Christians, who have a clear conscience, who technically have the right theology, to be careful, because the exercise of your right could actually cause a weaker Christian to sin. It's great that you have a clear conscience, it is, but it's wrong for you to press a weaker Christian to do something that they don't have the spiritual maturity to do yet. See, it comes back to love. This situation is not just about having a clear conscience, doing what you know is fine between yourself and God. To the Corinthian Christian, Paul says, you do have the right to eat that meat, but love demands that you are keenly aware of how your conduct affects the spiritual well-being of those around you. Paul then makes it personal with a statement that is astounding and deeply challenging. He says, therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. In other words, if it comes down to my rights versus the spiritual health of those around me, I will give up my rights every time. Because in Christ, love of others takes precedence over my rights. I do have great freedom, but I'm called to use it not for my own benefit, but for yours. And Paul continues with a personal example of how he lives out this principle um, in his specific context, with something that it might feel unrelated at first, but it's actually quite poignant. 
He talks about whether or not he, as an apostle, has the right to be compensated for his ministry, if he can make money off of what he's doing for the gospel. He argues it well, even citing the Old Testament, and easily he demonstrates that, yes, as one sent by Christ to minister, I have the right to take an income. I've planted churches, I teach, I raise up leaders. I have the right to get paid for it by the people I minister to. But Paul chooses not to. For reasons unknown to us in this text, Paul believes that earning money for the ministry has the potential to muddy his message and hinder the gospel. And he doesn't want to risk even the slightest offense or confusion about what he's been sent to do. And if denying compensation gets even one more person into the kingdom, it's worth it to Paul. Now, this doesn't mean that he's setting a precedent for all ministers to follow. And at other points in Paul's life, we see him accepting support from the churches he planted and even encouraging other ministers like Timothy to do the same. Certainly, I and others here at Ascension earn our living from ministry, so we don't take Paul's words to mean that accepting a salary for ministry is wrong. But in Paul's specific context, at this point, with the awareness to look around him, Paul decides that love takes precedence. Love compels him to give up his right to be paid. We see Paul's love of others taking precedence over his personal rights. But Paul takes it a step further, and this is where today's reading comes into play. Paul says, I don't just apply this principle to my right to compensation. When it's necessary, I lay down my rights to everything, pretty much everything that's not core to the gospel. What guides my conduct is not my preferences or what my conscience says is okay. My life is one of bending over backwards to do what's best for the people that I'm with. Now, I worded that statement carefully. The idea is bending over backwards to do what's best for the people I'm with, not what the people I'm with want me to do. Their difference is important, and it can lead to a life that is missional and confident like Paul's, or a life that is crippled by anxiety and people-pleasing. This is not what Paul is advocating, nor is it a pass for legalistic Christians to have their way. I've heard this passage used tragically by Christians to deny other Christians, the freedom to drink alcohol or get tattoos, right? The mindset of, if I think it's wrong, you shouldn't do it. That's not what Paul's saying here. The lesson is not that we should abstain from everything in our lives that could possibly offend others. What Paul is talking about is a voluntary, sacrificial, intentional act, not something that anyone can force upon you. And it's missional. Remember, the goal is for unbelievers to meet Christ and for those who believe already to grow into greater health and maturity. In love, Paul becomes subject to all, a servant of all, laying aside his rights and freedoms for the sake of the gospel. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. So when he hung out with Jewish people who followed the Old Testament law, the Torah, Paul did as well. He was totally kosher in Jewish settings, not because his conscience told him to. In fact, he knew that in Christ he was free from that law. But in order to win the Jews, he laid down his rights. And he does the same thing with the Gentiles. To those not having the law, he says, I became like one not having the law. And I love this, he adds, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. 
He clarifies, there are, there are Old Testament civil and ceremonial codes for God's people to abide by that are no longer binding under the new covenant. But Paul knows that being like one without the law doesn't mean to be lawless, that there are ethical imperatives of the Christian faith, a way that we are called to live, and Paul never abandons that. But he differentiates between the Jewish law and the law of Christ that applies to all Christians everywhere. Love your neighbor, seek justice, pray continually, and more. Those things he will not budge on. But the rest? When Paul is spending time with Gentiles, he, with wisdom and discernment, is willing to flex on things that he might argue for in other contexts. Love of others takes precedence over personal rights for the sake of the gospel. In fact, it is the gospel. Paul is taking his cues from Jesus, who, as we read in the scriptures, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage but became a servant, humbling himself and experiencing human suffering and even death. In his years on earth, Jesus, the very Son of God, often lay aside his right to exercise his power, his right to judge or condemn those who opposed him. I think of his temptations in the wilderness or, or when he stood on trial facing false accusation, just to name a few. Jesus laid aside his right for the sake of the mission, for love. It is because Jesus laid aside his rights in this way that Paul can invite us with him to follow in that example of laying aside our rights. And when we do, we have a better opportunity to welcome people from all social standing and cultural background into the kingdom so that we might say to everyone we meet, this good news is for you too. I hope, as I've been speaking, that potential implications for your life have already been coming to mind. Living this out might look quite a bit different for all of us as we have varying occupations, social standing, cultural habits, or circles of influence. Remembering back to Tim Keller's quote, we don't have a New Testament book of Leviticus. And while the big picture imperatives from scripture are clear, we are given a remarkable amount of freedom when it comes to what it looks like to live that out. And the gospel principle of love taking precedence over rights is helpful for me here. I have the right to do anything, as Paul later says, but not everything is beneficial or constructive to others. So what would it look like if my love of others took precedence over my rights? And maybe my right to vent on social media? Or what would it look like if love of others took precedence over my right to fight for a promotion or my right to spend my hard-earned money however I please? These things are, in most cases, not concrete matters of right and wrong. Buying nice things and getting promotions are not sinful. And it's not that Paul never exercised his rights. Sometimes he would enjoy a meal with meat that had been sacrificed to idols, and sometimes he would abstain. What's key for him, and I think this is key for us too, is that he could make these decisions because he cultivated a life of awareness of others. It was his love and consideration for them, his desire for them to know and love Jesus that guided his actions. 
He considered himself responsible in every moment to present an accurate portrait of the gospel to the world with how he conducted himself. If a certain action, even if Paul personally had the freedom to do it, if that could hinder another person in their perception of who Jesus is and and what it means to belong to the family of God, then Paul would deny himself that freedom. Like I said, it's an upside-down way to live. American culture pushes us toward individualism at every turn, towards prioritizing ourselves first. If you earned it, spend it. If you have the freedom, use it. Virtues like self-denial and sacrificial love do not come naturally to us. They don't come naturally to me. But daily, I thank God for giving me his Holy Spirit who unites me to Jesus Christ. And sacrificial love does come naturally to him. So as you go about your week, take special notice of the decisions you make that, though you may personally be free to make them, could have an effect on others. It's not about living in fear of causing offense. It's about cultivating awareness of who we have an influence on. The purpose is missional. So it's my challenge to all of us, myself included. May we be willing to flex like Paul, be willing to lay down our preferences for the sake of others. It's my desire to live in a way that invites others to come and know true abundant life, even if it comes at a cost to myself, because that's exactly what Christ did for me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, teach us what it means to love. Give us an awareness of those around us, the courage to lay down our rights for the sake of others, so that we might be effective witnesses to your gospel and that many would turn to you. Amen.